0: Welcome to Design Your Life in Business, the podcast for leaders by Bright Mind Consulting Group. We give you the necessary tools to help you become the architect of not just your business, but your life too. I'm your host, Javon Wooden. Hey, Alan, welcome to Design Your Life in Business. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. We have the million dollar consultant here with us, ladies and gentlemen on design life and business. So you know, we're gonna cover all things, getting this money in consulting. All right, so we're gonna hop right in as we always do, Alan. First question is, who are you? Who is Dr. Alan Weiss?
1: I don't know how to answer that. You know, I mean, I've had a long life. You know, at this point I'm a husband and a father and a grandfather and I have clients all over the world. I've moved from the wholesale business large corporations, the retail business, people like yourself. And my career today is uh, trying to help people live a better life than they ever thought possible. I love that.
0: Absolutely. And that's what we're all about here. So we've got a lot of questions to ask you because you are the expert in this. You are actually the godfather of value-based fees. So I got to ask you,
1: how did you get into this journey that you're on today? Well, I started my career at Prudential Insurance when I got out of undergraduate school. I was there four years, and I was recruited into a training firm in Princeton. And I spent 11 years there, and I rose up to a position where I was heading Latin America, the Far East, and North America. I traveled the world for 11 years with them, and I learned the business. I left them to become president of a firm here in Providence. I live in Rhode Island. And I was with that firm for 15 months, and the owner fired me. We hated each other. But, you know, you get very... Destroyed, or you get angry. And I got really angry. My wife said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to go out on my own. And she said, fair enough. I'm going to support you doing that, but you better get serious, she said. And I said, fair enough. And when I went out on my own, you know, there were 250,000 or whatever consultants in the country at that time, independent consultants. I made a couple of decisions, which really changed my life. One was that this is a relationship business. You're selling yourself. And the second is I would never charge again for a box of materials or a headcount or a seat or for an hour of time. I would only charge for the value I produced. And those two decisions saved my life. And so I began to let everybody in the world know where I was. You know, there was no internet. And so I sent hard copy mail. I made phone calls to people I knew. And you don't improve by trying to correct weaknesses. You improve by building on strengths. So I said, what can I do? I hate networking. I hate small talk, you know, but I can write and I can speak. So I wrote and I spoke. I wrote and I spoke. I wrote wherever I could. I spoke wherever I could. And what am I doing today? You know, I have the strongest solo consulting brand in the world and I'm still writing and speaking. So having done that, people started to call. And one of my first very large clients was Merck, the pharmaceutical giant. I worked with them for 12 years and I had probably 20 projects over that time and working with Merck and then Hewlett Packard and J.P. Morgan Chase and these elite firms, that was good enough. Once I said that, people said, you're good enough for us. And I started to get a lot of business.
0: Absolutely. So. I know a lot of people are asking, how did you land that consulting gig with Merck?
1: A woman who knew me in Princeton said, Merck is looking for someone and we don't provide the kind of consulting they do. We provide training. But I thought you might be interested in doing it. So I contacted the Merck individual. He invited me down. And I've only met two really outstanding human resources people in my life. And this guy was one of them. And he saw his job as understanding what line needs were, the line executives, and putting resources with them, instead of doing some kind of nutty hocus pocus and asking about training materials and this kind of garbage. And so he would set me up with these people, and I'll tell you what happened with the very first sale. He set me up with this guy, Dell McPherson, I'll never forget. Dell asked me for a proposal on a project. I lived in Jersey at the time, it was local, so I went back with my proposal, and my proposal was for $12,000. and Dell said, let me see that. I moved across the desk, and I started to see shooting lights. I thought I was having a heart attack. And what was happening was I was holding my breath. And when you hold your breath for about two minutes, you see shooting lights, you begin to respire, you know? <laughs> right. And Dell said, oh, this is fine. Let's get started. And I said to myself, oh, my God, it should have been 35000 <laughs> right? Yeah, he's like, yeah, sure. Okay. I have my first piece of business, which led to millions and millions of dollars of business emerged. Awesome. And you always say, like, don't get rich on the
0: first proposal with the client. Why do you say that? And then what is value-based fees?
1: Well, you have to think of the fourth sale first. And the reason is this. It is much, much, much easier to get expansion and repeat business from an existing client than it is to bring in a new piece of business. It's much more expensive to bring in a new piece It takes much more time. And what people don't realize is that there are three parts to a sale. There's the initial sale where you get a check. Then there's expansion business where you go on to do other things. Then there's referral business where they refer you to other companies. And that's not really trying to land new business because you go in the door easily that way. So, you know, don't try to get rich quick. Don't think of a sale, think of a
0: relationship. I love that because I talk about we kind of lost that. And it's funny that you've been in the game for so long and you still talk about relationships, but we've gone to this transactional type of business over the years. And it's really impacting a lot of organizations.
1: So how do we get back to that relational style of business? Well, it's not a matter of getting back. A lot of people still do it. It's a matter of your mindset, you know, and you have to view what you do as helping others, not as selling. People see sales as adversarial. I win, you have to lose. It's a zero sum game. So some people get up in the morning and they say, oh God, another day. I have bills to pay. I've got to make some calls. There's people who owe me money. It's a long, slow crawl through enemy territory, and this person sees himself or herself as selling, taking money from someone. The other person gets up and says, what a gorgeous day, what opportunity, I wonder if I can help. And this is somebody who's giving, not taking. And so if you're giving something, you don't have any problem with contacting people, you are trying to help them out. That's the mindset. And the transactional stuff you talk about has been made worse by the internet. People are trying to sell all kinds of crap on the internet. You know, there are people selling marketing advice who have never marketed a damn thing successfully. <laughs> Everyone's an expert in marketing these days. Well, you know, my two dogs are down here to my left and, you know, nobody knows you're a dog on the internet. That's quite true. I love it. So have you ever run
0: into a, a difficult client that was like value-based fees? You know, they're challenging you on all your negotiations. What do you do in that situation?
1: Yeah, well, all the time, but they're not difficult. They're asking reasonable questions. See, I don't know people are damaged. I tell them, well, that value-based fees are for your benefit. And now they're willing to listen. And I said, well, how's that? I said, well, right now, if you deal with a consultant, there's a meter running. There's always a meter running. And, you know, if you have a lawyer and you question the lawyer about a bill, the lawyer will explain the bill, but then he'll charge you for explaining about the bill. Right. And so you don't want that from me. The second is you don't want to have to make an investment decision every time you need me. Well, you know, is this worth $600 an hour or can I do it myself? Your people don't want to have to make investment decisions every time they need me. You have a capped amount. Your fee is this and you have to worry about going over that. And if you see me wandering the halls, you don't have to worry, oh my God, what's he charging me for this? So I go on and on that way. I give 10 or 12 reasons. That's easy. I can convert them because what they're seeing in me is somebody who's unique. They're seeing somebody who's making tremendous contributions right at that discussion.
0: Awesome. And that kind of lends to who
1: you are, the contrarian. Can you tell us more about how you got that name? Well, when I was fired and I had these 250,000 consultants I was competing with, I said, how am I going to stand out in the crowd here? So I said, well, what's popular today? I'm going to take it on and stand out because I'm against it. So what was popular was lean, you know, and the whole black belt thing and all this kind of stuff where you had to be lean and mean. And Quality circles, they called it, right? So there was a magazine in Boston, hard copy magazine, training something, and I wrote an article. I submitted it to the publisher. The article said, "Quality circles and quality as a whole are myths." So he runs the article, and people come after him. I mean, if you remember the Frankenstein movies with the pitchforks and the torches, all the lean people with their black belts at lean and mean. And I felt so bad. I called him to apologize, and he said, "Kid." I want you to write for me once a month, every month, just like that, I'll give you 50 bucks." And I said, they hated it. And then he said to me, but they read it. And that taught me one hell of a marketing lesson. So every month for six years, 72 issues, till I sold the magazine, 72 issues, I wrote something contrarian. Leadership doesn't start at the top but the bottom starts in the middle. You know, it doesn't matter, as long as I could defend it. And I became very popular. I also at that time took on human resources and I said, this is ridiculous. I was actually hired to speak at human resources conferences. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you have some interesting guys there. You know, like, oh, what's his name? He wrote Flawless Consulting. He's a great guy. Peter Black. And Peter Black would say, well, you know, if you rearrange tables and you look at each other differently, you communicate differently and so forth. And then you'd have the seven ways of thinking in 16 different behaviors to for <laughs> five different results and all this kind of stuff. Kobe, I don't know who that was. And then I'd get up there and I'd put a picture on the screen of a stegosaurus I said, you see that? That's you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it, man. Because you've done a lot and it really starts like I've read a lot of your books, and you always talk about that. Going against the grain and that authentic you, being unapologetic about it. It's gotten you far. But it takes a c- certain type of mindset. So how do you think that you've gotten to this point where you're like, I don't really care
1: what everyone else is saying? I'm going to speak my truth. Yeah, I think you're right. It takes a certain mindset, but I'm going to say what the mindset's based on. It's based on high self-esteem. And self-esteem can't be as high as your last victory or as low as your last defeat. It's gotta be constant. And so you're a worthy person. Whether or not you got this sale or didn't, you're a worthy person. People with low self-esteem, I didn't get the sale, I'm a lousy marketer. I'm not good in this business. What am I gonna do with my life, right? We all know people like this. So your self-esteem can't be too high. You know, I can walk on water on the best there is. It's gotta be at a correct, positive level. So when you have high self-esteem, and you feel you can support your arguments, why not? What's gonna happen to you? See, here's the thing that I shock people with. I am not here to be liked. I'm here to be respected. A lot of clients have hired me to speak, for example, to shake up the people in that audience. They're not looking for tens on the smile sheets, which I don't read anyway. They're not looking for these tepid standing patients where everybody gets up on their feet, which is like necessary today and it's absurd, right? They're looking for is that people just say, whoa, I've been doing this wrong. I'm not here to please people, I'm here to help them. Yeah, absolutely. That paradigm shift is necessary,
0: especially today. So you've worked with a lot of large organizations and some people have to be wondering, maybe they don't even know that you're a solopreneur, you do all this on your own. So how do you combat the larger consulting firms to land these
1: gigs? Because they're dinosaurs and I'm a mammal. I mean, here's the difference. When I was fired, there was a the big eight. They were the big accounting firms that went over to consulting because there's only so much accounting you can do. You can only do the books once a year. So they took that trust they had and moved over to consulting. Today, they're like the big two and a half or something. I mean, that's, you know, Anderson went out of business and so forth and so on. So I found that people wanted fast results. They didn't want to pay $500 an hour for 300 people who were just trying to learn your own business. They wanted something rapid. And when I said before that initial meeting was so important because I was providing value, You know, I started writing and talking about issues and how things could change and improve and have a proposal to them in 24 hours, you know, even before the internet. So I think that there are some firms that want what I call air cover. They want McKinsey to do their strategy. But my most recent book from a few months ago is Sentient Strategy. And that shows how you can set strategy in a single day looking at just one year. Because you also have strategies from the 50s. So you won't find everybody that way, but you'll find enough people to make a good living. Absolutely. And we got to go back to this
0: value-based fees. When you send in these proposals, what does that process look like of identifying what that proposal should say as far as pricing?
1: My proposal has uh, nine parts to it. It's 2.5 pages. That's it. There are no credentials. There's no resume because I already have a trusting relationship. So I don't need that stuff. So there are these nine parts and value-based fees is really based on this. It's based on what I call conceptual agreement with the buyer. What are the objectives? That is, what are the business outcomes? Better understanding, better development, better alignment, doesn't have business outcomes, That's HR crap. I mean, you can have better communications till the cows come home and still lose money. So these are business outcomes, profit, growth, brand, market share, things like that. Then metrics, how do you measure our progress toward these objectives? So it's very clear. And then thirdly, the value. What's the value in meeting the objectives? Value should always be monetized wherever possible. And so you talk to the buyer, you get from the buyer, if we improve sales by 1%, if we decreased expenses by 3%, if we got to a larger market, what would that mean to this company? So you have objectives, measures, and value. And then when you get to your fees, the client sees a clear return on the investment. And I always go for at least 10 to 1. So there's nothing at all awkward about asking for $100,000 if you're showing a million dollars in results. I mean, who wouldn't take that? In? I mean, short of buying Apple when it was first started, where else do you get that kind of return? And I did. Very true. You
0: will not. So it's kind of like a win-win. And you also talk about giving options in your books. So what do those options look like? I think you said give three options. Is that correct?
1: Psychologically, people respond best to three, four, five, six, confuse them. Two seems like a binary decision, but three is really good. And they escalate. So the first option meets all the objectives. Otherwise it's unethical. And so I can meet your objective option one, but option two. So for example, option one creates, employees who operate with different behaviors and get higher results. Option two would be to work with their managers. So over time, they can build on that behavior and help to continue to reinforce it. Option three is to remain an advisor for six months after that. So if they hit problems or they have issues or they have questions, I'm available. So that's an easy example of three options. And people don't like to spend more money, but they hate to lose value. And so the analogy is, you know, you go into a car dealership and he says, well, I understand what your objectives are. You take the keys and drive this car. Take it for a test drive. Guy comes by and says, I love this car. And the sales guy says, you look really cool in it. And you say, I look cool? You say, in fact, there's a car around the corner here, a little more money. You look even cooler in that. And the customer says, well, it can't hurt to sit in it, right? I mean, that's how you escalate sales. You're giving a lot
0: of value, Alan, as I knew you would. There was a situation in your book, right? When you talked about you were working with an organization, he said, Hey, I want you to find me a speaker. And you said, Well, I'm a speaker, you know. How do you broach those kind of topics with people? Do you just wait for them to say something? Or is there another way to get in there and say, Hey, I can provide this as well once you're in that organization?
1: Well, I use that as an example of a mistake I made. It was an insurance company in Connecticut here, and I'd worked with them for about two years with the CEO. And he says to me, Look, I'm the program director for this insurance association. We need a speaker. Do you know anybody? And I said, I'm a professional speaker. You know, I'm in the Speaking Hall of Fame. He said, Alan, come on. You're trying to get more business, but I need a really good speaker. So I had to show him some videos. But to answer your question, what we all should do is apprise our buyers of the full gamut of what we're available to do and not let them put us in a pigeonhole, not let them be too narrow about us. And if we're honest about that at the beginning. People would always rather work with those they already trust. And so the question would have been, Alan, I know you're a speaker. Could you handle this for me? I don't
0: even know how you feel about pitch decks, but do you put that in up front? How do you let them know what you do?
1: If you're using a pitch deck, you're an amateur.
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: I knew you were going to say that. That's the... <laughs> the relationship business, you know, elevator pitches, all that kind of crap, airline pitches. Come on, give me a break. I mean, if somebody did an elevator pitch on me, I'd hit the stop button and I'd say, you get off here. It's a relationship business, you develop trust. And so in the proposal, you focus only on what the current need is. But in your discussions with the buyer before, doing and after, you drop in little war stories. You say, listen, I was speaking to a group in Worcester the other day, and it reminded me of something you and I had talked about, see? I was coaching an executive on Zoom, and it turned out that it was even more effective than us doing it in person. And so the buyer says, oh, you coach too? See, that's how it works. You make it sound so easy, man. It is easy. My job is to make things simple, not to complexify. You know, you go on LinkedIn. You want a good laugh, go on go on LinkedIn, and you'll see how well off you are. And you have these people, I want to show you how to drink a glass of water, they'll say. And they have these elaborate charts and 15 different colors and arrows and diagrams and then and, and all this kind of stuff to show you how to drink water instead of just lifting up the damn glass. And so a lot of people think consulting is about being obtuse and complicated. It's not. Right. It's the the
0: opposite. I mean, that's why you are the million dollar consultant and running it on your own. Although you are a solopreneur, so to speak, I mean, you've done this time and time again. You also talk about outsourcing. Can you tell us the importance of that and how that looks for your business?
1: Yeah. I'll tell you what's really interesting to me. A client or a prospect says to us, Well, I think I could do this myself. And my response is, Yeah, well, how's that working out for you? You know, I'm an expert in organizational change or strategy, whatever. Why would you want to do this yourself? Because it's going to cost you more and it won't be as effective. I'm the expert, you know? Now, you make brake pads, client. Would you tell your customers to make their own brake pads? That's not what you're telling your clients. You're telling we're the experts. Yet, we have all these consultants who are trying to do their own taxes on Quicken or some s- silly thing like that. Get yourself a good accountant so the IRS doesn't come after you, right? And so you outsource. You need legal help for trademarks and for litigation, perhaps. You need accounting help for your monthly books and financials and your taxes. You need design help if you wanna change your website or change something you produce in hard copy and so on and so forth. And so you outsource to these people. And I like to outsource to the same people because you get their loyalty. And I pay people very quickly, you know, as a rule, pay local people quickly. American Express can wait, but pay local people quickly because you need their help, you need their services. So outsourcing is the key. But the last thing you want is the staff and overhead. You know, who wants overhead? Who wants to pay salaries and benefits, worry about absences, listen to people who have problems with their families? I mean, give me a break. I manage people, you know? Okay, I checked that box off. I never want to do that again.
0: <laughs> I'm with you, man. You talk about complexity. That gets really complex really quickly. So I know we're talking more so about consulting here, but professional service in general, do you see any changes coming into play with all the technological advances and differentiation
1: going on? Yeah, I do. I think in our special order, number one, AI is not a big threat. I mean, chat GPT is not going to you know take over the universe and annihilate us. However, we need to learn to use these things when they're appropriate and not use them when they're inappropriate. So for example, chat GPT, I think is great for things like legal briefs. It's great for things like directions when you get a new computer or something. It's great for boilerplate maybe on some proposals. It's not good for creative writing. It's not good to stand out in a crowd. Already we see schools taking pains to use anti-technology really, anti-GPT, to make sure that dissertations are not just run off this equipment. So they're gonna be trouble with that. So that's a matter of using the right thing at the right time. The second thing is you can already see that there's a tremendous problem for leaders with people who are in the office, not in the office, or going back and forth between home and the office. They don't know really how to lead and and help these people motivate themselves. And so that's gonna be a big, big feature for consultants. We're going to have to help more and more with that because that's still unsettled. The final thing I'll mention to you, which I write about in all my books, is that disruption and volatility are offensive weapons. We ought to stop you know, doing this or being like an ostrich with our head in the sand. The fact is, if you look at FedEx or Amazon or Apple or Dyson or any of these great companies, they rule their market because they've been disruptive. You mentioned before, I introduced value-based fees in the 90s for consultants. I disrupted the profession. And today I have the strongest brand in the world. And so disruption and volatility have to be used offensively and we have to get
0: better at it. I wholeheartedly agree. I know a lot of people are wondering, like, how do I disrupt? Because it feels like everything is happening under the sun. So does disruption mean big change or could it be something as simple as doing something a little bit differently than it has been
1: done before? Well, it's both. And here's the proof. So There are three kinds of innovation. There's opportunism, where you see something, so I'm going to capitalize on that, and it's brief, you know? So Dunkin' Donuts down here loses power one morning. Not the neighborhood, just Dunkin' Donuts. So, But people are still going there for coffee. They don't know this. So a guy pulls up with a canteen truck that serves plants, and he sells out his coffee and his donuts in 45 minutes because he's in their parking lot. That's opportunism. But he can't come back the next day because Dunkin's going to restore power. Okay, there's conformist innovation, and that's Uber. Uber's a taxi service. They didn't invent taxis, but they saw the weaknesses where you couldn't get one when you wanted one, the taxis were filthy, the drivers didn't know their destinations, you couldn't hail one remotely. Uber changed the industry, and now taxis have their own ride-hailing because they couldn't fight Uber. They have to understand that's the way to go. So is a case of conformist innovation. You make something really, really better. Non-conformist innovations, when you invent something new, and that's Amazon. Amazon started as a book distributor. And Bezos sits down one day and says, wait a minute, my strength is not selling books, my strength is a distribution network. And now he sells food and all kinds of stuff, right? And the next day, I mean, I ordered something on Sunday, and it was here on Monday. It's extraordinary, right? So you need innovation to grow. And you need to grow because if you don't grow, you're going to die. You know, that plateau will erode. And so people have to look at both small increments, as you pointed out, and also major things to help them to continue to grow, and that has to be your mindset. And that's why the only way I've ever seen people able to coast is downhill. You can't coast uphill. You have to work at it.
0: Absolutely. That was beautifully said, Alan. So we're going to shift to our by design segment where I ask every guest the same three questions. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. (laughs) This is nothing for you. So (laughs) first question is, What has been
1: the hardest part about designing a
0: life in business you don't need a vacation from?
1: Well, I I do take vacations. You know this, right? I mean, we just came back from Nantucket where we go every year, and next week we're going on an Alaskan cruise. And, you know, the whole family's going to Italy next year. I mean, our extended family. So I take vacations. But let me answer your question this way to be fair. I don't think people have a personal life and a business life. You have a life. So stop compartmentalizing it and make the best of everything. So if you picture a big coliseum or a huge auditorium, What you see at first glance are hundreds of thousands of feet of empty space. But what we do is we say, well, I have a business life and a personal life. So we put a wall right down the middle. So now it's only half as big on each side. Then we create corridors and we create obstacles and we create detours. I've got to do this. I've got to clean the garage. Oh, I have to make some uh, referral calls. And pretty soon the place is like a maze and we don't have any elbow room anymore. And so if you look at your life holistically and then you say, what is it I love doing? What's my calling? That's a life that's continually motivational. I want to give you a quick example because your question's important. In the speaking profession, there's an old, terrible story that you come across a mason. And you say to the mason, what are you doing? He says, I'm laying bricks. Then you come to a second mason and you say, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral. Now, the moral of the story is supposed to be the first guy has a job. The second guy has a career, right? I got news for you. There's a third mason. And when you say to the third mason, what do you do? And he says, I'm bringing people closer to God. That's a calling. And if we have callings, we love what we do every day because we're helping people, we're having a great time, and we're making money because you can't help others till you help yourself. So that's the way I look at things. I have no problem on a weekday going out to the pool you know, at one o'clock. I also have no problem on a Saturday writing a proposal because the spirit moves me. I love that.
0: And yeah, you use that one in the books. You have a ton of books. So I just want to plug you myself. I've read a a ton of them. They're all great. So if you have not read his books, I definitely recommend that you do so. I mean, he has a ton. He just mentioned one earlier. And we're going to give you some time to tell him where to find him, Alan, after these questions. So number
1: two, what is the best lesson you've learned on your entrepreneurial journey? I think that when you boil it all away, honesty and generosity are the keys. I say honesty because you do no one a favor when you don't give them bad news when you inflate good news, and you do no one a favor when you don't acknowledge what they've done well. And so you have to remove your ego, not worry about being liked again, but you have to be honest with people, otherwise they can't be helped. The second, de- generosity, of all the top people I've known, of business, entertainment, sports, education, they're generous. And I don't mean that they give you money or the right checks, although they might be philanthropic, but they share ideas, they coach, they do pro bono work. They're available. One of the fundamental things that sets me aside from my peers, and my peers are excellent in this business, you know, is that I am accessible. People can reach me. You know, you can write back on my blog. You can leave a message for me and I call you back. You can write to me and I write back. A lot of my peers, they have other objectives, other priorities. So I think honesty and generosity, the things I've learned which I wouldn't have cited at the beginning when I was in a survival mode.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I understand that completely. When you're
1: thriving and when you feel like
0: you're doing well, you're able to do that a little more often. And you mentioned it before. You don't feel like you're in that maze anymore. So I think that was beautiful. Number three, what are three tools or tips that
1: you would recommend when scaling a business? All right. So in no special order, I don't know that I have three. I'd recommend one that you have to understand that all customers and all clients are not equal. And you have to triage them. Some clients will take you a long way, like Merck. And some clients are just there for one assignment, and it's appropriate. And then some clients you should get away from. The only thing worse than no business is bad business, because it sucks the life out of you. So the customer is not always right. So you triage your clients. The second thing is that in order to grow, you have to let go. And so you can't keep even good clients around like they're pets. As you grow and expand, there are clients you're currently dealing with who are no longer appropriate. And you have to say to them, look, I've moved on to other things, I'm not helping you the way I used to, and so forth. The third thing that comes to my mind is I created this thing called Watertight Doors. You might've read about them in one of the books. And you start on a survival basis, and then you go to an alive basis and then arrive and then thrive. And so as you go up, you're less worried about money, you have more financial security, you have more business and more pipeline, more intellectual property and so forth. But to make that shift, You have to move from a scarcity or poverty mentality to an abundance mentality. And that means if you arrive or thrive, you can't still be acting as if you have no money. You can't still be acting as if you have all this competition. And that's where the generosity and the honesty come in. And so you have to understand where you are in life. Every single day, I'll give you a fourth, every single day, you're adding to your legacy. Your legacy does not begin when you're on your deathbed. Every day you enter your legacy. So the question is, who's writing that page in the book? Is it the same page as yesterday? Is it a blank page? Is somebody else writing your page? Or are you writing the page? So every page should be new and you want to be writing it. Your legacy is now. Absolutely.
0: And you actually wrote something that said, legacy, life is not about a search for meaning, but the creation of meaning. Yes, sir. Man, Alan, it's been an amazing conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, this is not just for consultants. everyone can get something out of this. So go ahead and listen again and take notes, get those show notes for sure. So Alan, how can people connect with you?
1: Alanweiss.com, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. There's free audio, there's free video, there's free text. I'm not selling anyone anything. You can subscribe to my newsletters. I have a daily video uh, Monday through Friday called A Minute with Alan. All this is free. You can get it there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much,
0: Alan. And we look forward to what you have next. I got to pick up that new book. I hadn't gotten that one yet. So I will go ahead and purchase that today because like I said, every book I've read of yours has been amazing. If you like, send me an email. I'll send you an autographed copy. Don't worry about it. Hey, sounds like a plan to me, man. All <laughs> right. So, <laughs> Hey, remember designers listening, keep ascending, do not stop and do not search for meaning, create the meaning as my man, Alan Weiss has said. See you soon. Design Your Life and Business, the podcast for leaders, is brought to you by Bright Mind Consulting Group. To find out more about Bright Mind Consulting Group and how you can become the best leader possible, visit brightmindconsultinggroup.com. Make sure you search for Design Your Life and Business on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Bright Mind Consulting Group, We cannot thank you enough for listening.